So I think that we're going to get to a point where our ability to tell our story with all these digital digressions is going to require discipline and a system. And that's why I wrote the book. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. George Bernard Shaw said, life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. Perhaps there might be no one who understands that better than my guest today, Dr. Dennis Ribello. He's author of a book called Story Like You Mean It, how to build and use your personal narrative to illustrate who you really are. Dr. D is a professor, a speaker, a career coach. He's the creator of the Peak Storytelling Model, a research-based method for crafting the narrative of who you are, what drives you, and why, which has been utilized by former professional athletes, turned nonprofit leaders, as well as entrepreneurs, CEOs, guidance professionals, and advisors around the world. One of the things that I love about this book and about Dr. D's approach is that it provides structure to really identifying what are those key moments of your life that you can share when you meet others, whether it's for an interview, whether it's upon an initial meeting, whether you're running into somebody you haven't seen in a long time. Anytime you have the chance to answer the question, tell me about yourself, which can be one of the most simple and most difficult questions to answer. So in this interview, we cover why that's so hard, how to do it well, why it matters, really taking ownership of claiming your identity, crafting and living an empowering message, as Dr. D says, bringing the future into the present. So with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Dr. D. And by the way, you can learn more about him and his work at his website, drdennisribello.com. Ribello is spelled R-E-B-E-L-O. Enjoy. Dr. D, welcome to the School for Good Living. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's uh, wonderful to be here, brilliant. Yeah, I'm so glad you are. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? Mm. Well, I think underneath it all, it's a story formation process. Now that's the short answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, some of it is done unto you or apparently feels that way. And some of it is initiated by you. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about yourself. Yeah. So uh, great question, right? <laughs> yeah. Spinning it onto me. So of course the book story, like you mean it is, is really answering the question at any age and stage. How do you answer this question? Whether it's voiced to you, tell me about yourself as you just did to me, brilliant, or whether or not you, uh, maybe you roll into a, an opportunity to say hello to someone and there's an implied, tell me about yourself. Right. So I'll tell you about me. <laughs> uh, so I am a, uh, my father, uh, Jose, is my grandfather. Uh, he gave me that lovely uh, watch by way through my father, um, uh, who is Portuguese. So my grandfather uh, is Portuguese. My uh, mother's side of the family is mostly Irish with some Polish. Um, they influenced me a lot. So my tell me about yourself is really that I was a, a little bit of an explorer of a kid. And my first uh, dive into understanding other people were through my grandparents because I could ride my BMX bike to their, uh, in the eighties, of course, uh, to their homes. I had both grandparents and great grandparents within biking distance. It was probably my first phenomenological interview, right? Understanding people's lived experiences, right? 
Yeah. And as they, you know, I wanted to understand their stories. And so I was a little explorer, but I didn't just interview my grandparents. I, I loved my bike and I loved jumping it off of jumps and then using my mathematical brain to determine the angle of incident, you know, the tire hitting the jump. It is, you know, this is all pre X games. So this is pretty innovative stuff. Brilliant. You know? And so then what I realized is I actually love teaching other uh, kids in the neighborhood how, how to jump their BMX bikes. Now this might be far-fetched. You think, Hey, I have a professor here uh, in an interview about a book about story, but lo and behold, uh, the teacher within me uh, was really uh, the fuse was lit when I was uh, back at, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, yeah. because I, I, you know, right. And so I, so what, what was I doing? I was teaching, I was codifying, I was observing, I was receptive, I was analytical and I was synthesizing and I was doing it for me, but then I wanted to do it for others so that they could be more engaged in something that was new, that was novel. And that was a bit com more complex. And then I, uh, as a human being, of course, you have to kind of go on from bike riding and do things like science fair projects. And I had to do a mandatory one uh, at a time where I, I, I was uh, in a private school and uh, I was a little intimidated because I had all these judges that were older than me and obviously teachers. And of course, they had authority. But I, I really dove into physics and I learned how to build holograms in my basement. I built a little lab there. So you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, this is a BMX guy who loves physics and now he's doing story pathing. He's teaching people public speaking around their own story. Well, lo and behold, I was actually a bit of a teacher then too. I really, what I learned to do was teach people older than me about this science fair project that had lasers and optics and holography, how it was or could be useful to the FBI to uh, perfect or evolve their fingerprint identification system, which led me to the Department of Energy. And lo and behold, again, the teacher theme emerged. So when I started my first business after working in a military academy, I realized that the answer to be, being a really effective entrepreneur is teaching. And to be a good leader, you must be a good teacher. And then I would look for the most difficult things for people to do. And lo and behold, it wasn't physics. And it wasn't explaining your science fair project. Uh, it, and it wasn't in any engineering, although I guess you could say it was engineering a better way to organize one story at work. So human beings at work became my new science fair project. And I wanted to crack the code as to how people felt more engaged at work, whether they were a leader, mid-manager, or someone in transition. That is to say somebody who was moving along and trying to transfer their skills out of the military, for instance, or into a family business after leaving a family business. So how do you transfer that provisional identity claim? How do you do narrative accounting? So really what I am is uh, I'm a pioneer quester teacher on the fringe of uh, you know, university life because I am a full-time professor who has dedicated his life to cracking the code to some humanistic complex stuff, namely storytelling about oneself. The hardest thing to do is to answer the question, tell me about yourself. So BMX rider, turn science fair project, turn organizational person who specializes in helping people tell their stories. And I do that in Zoom rooms, through Navy ships or on Navy ships by way of my learning programs that are remote and in boardrooms. And uh, I have to say, I think that's my story path. <laughs> now, thank you for, thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned it about how difficult it can be to answer that question. Tell me about yourself or to tell our own story. And 
And uh, I'm reminded too, by the way, in part of what you said about teaching, right? About being an effective entrepreneur, being an effective leader is about teaching. And that totally resonates with me because my dad, you know, he passed 12 years ago, but before he died, he would say that the, the, the second responsibility, second, the first incidentally was to protect the legal and financial well-being of the company. That was every employee, regardless of position or tenure, had that responsibility. But number two is to be a teacher. That was what he established as our culture. So that totally resonates with me. But then back to this thing that you're saying about, you know, um, answering this question, who are you? Tell me about yourself. You know, that kind of thing that is so hard. Why is that so hard for us to do? Yeah. So look, if, one of the reasons why is that, and I, and by the way, that's what, that's what really sparked this whole, not obsession, but near obsession <laughs> with uh, trying to create an apparatus and then ultimately creating an apparatus or a system for organizing through a model, how people can, because the book is really a, a manual that presents a model for individuals who are reading it at any age or stage. You could be a 16 year old Cambodian English second language learner person. You could be the head of uh, a family enterprise. You could be just deciding that you want to be a teacher uh, for real and leave uh, financial tech. And you should be able to go through this method to recraft your narrative. But the reason why it's so difficult is because we are we collect a lot of lived experiences. And when we meet someone, we do no preparation. This is not like uh, getting into the batter's box for real or uh, you know, shooting a three-pointer, you know, where you've done so much work as a player to step into that box or to, to release that ball. Right. And, and, by, and, and one of the big differences, too, is that the game has its time bound. There's a beginning. There's that's right. quarters or innings. There's an end. <laughs> so you can that's right. for it. You perform. You leave. Whereas with life and relationships, you're always on. You're always on. But we never acknowledge mostly that we have to get better at this. We never use our phones to record the answer. Like I would challenge people in a very positive, loving way right now uh, with lots of appreciation for wherever you are, listeners. Uh, Answer the question, tell me about yourself right now and answer it, record it in your phone. Then, then take a moment. Don't, don't beat yourself up. Don't overly defend yourself. Don't, don't worry about any emotions. Just set it aside. Listen to the rest of the podcast. You know, Hit pause now, listen to the rest of it, and then come back to it later. And, and maybe, just maybe, you can evolve that. So why it's difficult is because we don't acknowledge uh, that we're conscious of a storytelling moment, but we really are. And we don't prep for that, that moment. So we wrote, so this is the research that I presented uh, at Oxford University in England uh, a few years back. And this is what really was a blast to share. So here it is. If you're thinking about it uh, and you're listening, think about you show up at, at a, you're, you're about to roll into an interview, maybe a conference, maybe a meeting, and you know people are going to go around the room. That's a tell me about yourself. You're going into an interview and you really want the job. Tell me about yourself. You're starting to uh, assume a new position in your job. Tell me about yourself. People want to know who are you anyway that you deserve this particular position, uh, have authority or expertise. So when we do that, we have an unclear start. This is the research. Unclear start because we have so many dots in our head. We start to rake through all of them. Which one should I say to Brilliant right now to the audience that's about me? Um, and so uh, I have that unclear start. I pause. Then I have a, a rough unfolding. And on that start, by the way, to, to jump in for a minute, do you yeah, call yeah, that do like a story vault? 
what do you when, when you're mentally searching for which ones do I tell? Yeah, that yeah, it's the rough start. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. It, and like you go into the vault. That's exactly what I call it. It's a, it's a story vault, and and you start to rate through the live, lived experiences, and you don't really know that you're doing this until I tell you this. Like if like if you're listening, you're like, oh yeah, I do that too, right? It's because yeah. we don't even reflect that much upon it. But but once you do that, so you you start to realize maybe I'll say this to brilliant, maybe I'll say that to brilliant, and then I look at your nonverbal, your verbal. And then I hurry up and I rush some more. And then I realized what I wanted to say was really not captured. Time, the temporal nature of a dialogue or an introduction becomes more aware. The person who is uh, to all people, but especially to the storyteller. Mm-hmm. And then you close it up. So Rollo May said, you know, it's an ironic and un- uh, unfortunate habit that uh, as human beings, we tend to speed up as we lose our way. Boom. There we go. We lost our way. Then we say, oh, I'll get it next time. Well, the reality is you do not have 16 or 17 more times to say, hey, oh, by the way, I kind of goofed up my introduction. Now that I know you more brilliant, I'll tell you about me. Yeah, so it, it is it, true. <laughs> it is true that you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Yeah. I mean, it's a long lasting sort of truth that we all know to be uh, actually verified by our lived experiences <laughs> yeah. that, you know, we'll see someone years later and they'll say, I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Because, because as storytellers, as interviewers, as leaders, as human beings, we didn't do the reflection in a structured way. And this doesn't mean rigid, by the way. It means guided so that you can identify the lived experiences that define you. See, mm-hmm. brilliant. This is an inside-outside uh, job. This is about me search. I have to understand what I should be reverent to as a human being. So if, if you know, I loved my bike. Now, maybe it would be weird for me to say that about my bike. No, because that was a, my past story was about really overcoming my fear of teaching people something new, which is really the essence of, of what I did when I was a BMX rider. And then I, when I released it, yeah, it, I felt liberated. I felt like I had every kid in the neighborhood um, helicoptering around me in dirt with metal and blocks and bricks uh, to see how could you jump 10 feet high when you were only five foot two? How could you, how could you then race and beat somebody 30 pounds heavier than you because you were better at understanding how the, the clay and the dirt mixed after a rainstorm, right? All of these things, analytical competency, right? Receptivity, and then eventually communication. But I knew that about myself. Why, why am I mentioning it to you here? Because if I didn't think there was value to that moment in my life, teaching others how to ride a BMX bike in a very good way, then I would say, oh, I'm not sure if he wants to hear that. Yeah. And I would, and I would sequester that dot, that blue dot or that moment in my life, you see, because we're just connecting dots. We're connecting a hero moment to a collaborative, to a virtuous. And that's, a, it does, it sounds fancy, but it really just means something hero here is overcoming an obstacle, right? Learning in a new language, um, maybe not second guessing your ability to teach or to speak. Collaborative is doing something with others, right? Which I did with my science fair work and, you know, my research and then, getting to virtuous, which is back to self again. So it goes self, other self, where I say, I absolutely love this thing that I'm doing. It would be immoral for me not to do it. And for me, that's teaching people how to tell their story. It would be immoral for me to stop as much as it would be immoral for you to stop convening people who could contribute to everyone's existential intelligence, their well-being, and how to have good living be embodied daily, not right. And so that's something that you figured out how to crack the code to convene people. And you do that in so many different ways. 
So it would be immoral if you stop and you say, hey, I just want to go do this now. It would it would it would feel uh, probably you'd have a somatic bodily reaction. You would uh, feel like uh, you were unliberated. Uh, you would feel like a the caged man in the metaphor uh, that uh, May, Arallo May uses uh, in one of his books. Right. The caged metaphor, a caged man metaphor is that uh, a man was caged and put into a village square and people would look at him and it was a, a man. So I'm not, uh, you know, misusing the, the he, she, they. It was a man in the story. So it's accurate. And what we saw over in the book, he talks about how that person lost their expression of uh, aliveness and people would look at him less and he became more of a fixture as opposed to an animated being. So when we think about uh, liberation, liberation, this is, that's, this is storytelling for personal liberation. And if I were to squelch who I was as a BMX rider, I wouldn't show you the playfulness of me the aliveness of me. I, if I didn't tell you that I did a science fair project, you wouldn't say, wow, he's analytical. You would just say, you know, maybe he got his PhD, he wrote a book and you know, that's that. But there are a lot of wrinkles to people and there's, there, those wrinkles come from the lived experiences. And it's really like dimensionality and depth and aliveness, right? That we see in those formative experiences, which is really to say energy. Yeah. Yeah. And it is those nuances and those contours and those idiosyncrasies that are not only so uh, compelling, but they're what can connect us to each other. I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So much. So I, I feel like I, I interrupted you a little bit in, in your response to why is it so darn hard to answer this question of tell me about yourself yeah. and you were talking about a rough start. Yeah. So what, what are the components of why it's so hard? So it's so hard. And, and I gave you, uh, so what I just did for folks listening is I, I really uh, provided you uh, what's called the Ox, Oxford loop diagram, which is the Oxford loop diagram is essentially, here's what happens when people try to successfully tell a story. It's hard. So that's why I, I started there. Now, it's, it now, why, why is it such a bad diagram? <laughs> right. Well, first of all, all models are wrong. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it, yeah, all models are wrong, but this was extracted from interviews with people who said they were good storytellers uh, and they, and they told me personally, right. Cause that, because I was a lead researcher, why it was so difficult. And so everything that I just shared with the listeners and you is about why it's difficult because we have too much in our head and we haven't pre-reflected on our own identity. Yeah. So, so I, I think brilliant to the short answer would be this. We don't think of our, our life as uh, a, as having narrative identity as human beings uh, by and large, Eastern or Western. We, we a little bit more in different uh, communities and cultures. If we think about why it's so difficult to tell our story is because uh, the pace, the cadence of our society is quick and self-reflection to land on those formative experiences isn't really taught at all. It's not taught in guidance counselor offices, uh, college success offices. It's not taught in HR offices. It's not even taught in development uh, work, really. A lot of the work that folks are doing now is really about meaning making and self-expression. So how do you do that? Those are the two most important bits for the modern worker. They want the modern worker, me, you included, all right, we're still modern, we're still working. We want meaning making, yes. And we want, we also want self-expression, but we're not taught how to do that, right? We go to school and we have to raise our hands to speak unless you're in kindergarten, then you get the circle. You can stay in circle and it's a little bit more liberal. Uh, then you go to work, you're in a cube, you're in a meeting, uh, you, you can uh, speak only, only when spoken to, 
right? And so we really sort of take away the storytelling muscle from people. Yeah. Right. So like don't, just as you're saying, yeah, by the way, not only are we not taught to, we're discouraged from in many cases, right? <laughs> yeah. Unless we're the leader and we yeah. get the spotlight, we get the opportunities. That's right. right? That's right. Uh, and then you can do whatever you want. You can come in late to the meeting and you can uh, pick on people and, you know, look at people, I think uh, are humanistic. The impulse of, of a humans is good, but we carry a lot of baggage. So coincidentally, um, a lot of leaders' behaviors are informed by decades old or, or decades of reinforcement of behavior that isn't necessarily holistic, right? So it was like achievement only, achieve, 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 utilitarianism. But yeah. now we're placing more weight, as we should, on this sort of notion of extreme humanism. And that is not to say that you don't do work, you're not just soft. It just means that you're aware of your own awareness and, and the awareness of others and their engagement in your life. So storytelling, to answer the question at last, is difficult because we don't teach a model. We don't have people go through and actually have a, a, an educational experience, a developmental experience, even onboarding people into an organization. That is the richest time where we give people storytelling latitude. But no, I, I, I have not yet heard of a, 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 an organization that says, let me tell you how you can tell your story. Do this. Tell your story so that you're validated, you enter our organization, so that your ethos, the ethos of the organization is made better and more purified. Now, I've seen evidence of it here and there. You know, my work at Alex and Ani during the beginning days, absolutely. My work uh, helping out with uh, Tony Shea over in Zappos, absolutely. I, but I was in these fringe areas of the learning village doing this work. So I think that we're going to get to a point where our ability to tell our story with all these digital digressions is going to require discipline and a system. And that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I, I think you're right about, you know, the reasons that it's challenging and probably more, right? Because one of them we didn't talk about, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but about the context is shifting too. Who am I talking to? Where are we? What's the purpose I'm trying to achieve, right? Is it, and then does all of that contribute to the psychological safety and, and so forth. So there's context shifting. So like all of those things. And, and I'm really uh, amazed at this because in the coaching I do, right, where coaching is always for me, the starting point is always, 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 what do you want? Which is a, it's hard to answer in many cases is tell me about yourself or who are you, yeah, right? right? But then when we're able to get some clarity on what would you want? How would you know? What would it look like? You know, this kind of thing. Invariably, like people seem to jump to, okay, what's my strategy? What do I have to do to get what I want? But what they neglect to see is who do you have to be? What is the identity that you have to have, right? Because what we do follows naturally, necessarily, inescapably from who we are, who we know ourselves to be, right? So what I'm really intrigued by your work because it's all around identity. The stories we tell are intertwined with our identity. And that is so amazing that we can actually shift our identity through a declaration but we also want or often feel like we need evidence. Oh, I'm not an author. I haven't written a book yet. Yeah. But one of the things I'll challenge people is I'll say, look, was Michael Jordan a champion before he ever won in North Carolina or before he ever won an, an NBA championship? Like, you know, are champions champions before they, they have the hardware to prove it, you know, kind of thing. I know I'm, I'm kind of ram, I'm kind of riffing a little bit on this thing of identity, but yeah. would you talk about the role or the relationship of identity to the stories we tell? Yeah. So, so riff away, brother, riff away. 
right? Because this is the essence of, of, uh, of being. We shape our identity based on us as learners and teachers. So as a human being, you're a learner and you're a teacher. So I did some work with Tony Dungy uh, in helping him with his story, unpacking it for uh, the Sports Mind Institute, um, which I founded with a couple of uh, sports executives and a family business person. And, uh, and I don't have an interest in it now, but it was, it was a wonderful journey. And, you know, he wrote a book called the, the leader mentor, right? Right. Like a great me- the mentor leader, pardon. And I want, I want to introduce this concept here in our dialogue that if you're a learner, so we'll get away from Tony for a minute. <laughs> I love you, Tony, but not right now. <laughs> Just you were a bridge to this. Um, when, when you are living, you are learning, right? And when you are learning, you are living, right? So now that's not just a trite saying. You could say it in a very quick way at a speech, a speaking moment, and you know, people think, oh, that leader is clever. But how do you help people do that? And that's the missing link. So how do you use self-reflection to help people take inventory of moments in their life and then grab one, two, three, on the hero side, one, two, three, and the, the middle collaborating, creating something with others and one, two, three on the virtuous side, which is loving this thing. How do you get that to happen? Well, every human being, this is a presumption uh, that I make is capable of learning. They're capable of also applying science in their own life because experience, as Edmund Husserl said itself is not experience itself is, is not science. You have to have science right? It is not evidence. You have to have science to really construct something. Science, the word science just means to, to cut something up. It means to cut up. So if you can cut up an experience and, and be analytical, then you can understand the, what's called the essence of it in phenomenology. Now, phenomenology is the study of, of the mind through subjective lived experiences. And from a social science standpoint, that's what I use to, to do my formal research. But what I wanted to do with this book is to ensure that a 16-year-old could find that they wanted to study African-American studies by thinking about a moment when she was watching her brothers argue about rap songs and the uh, etymology of certain words in them. Now, that's really cool, but it also helps somebody who might be good at math and accounting and finance figure out a moment in their life where they help their parents balance their books as uh, uh, immigrant uh, parents who owned a variety store in New York City. So everybody has lived experiences that if you go back to them, you can start to connect the dots in your life, but you have to be reverent to the fact that you are an interpreter of those moments. And it's not a season of things, it's a moment. It's the time when you sat and looked at your father and said, dad is really sick. And I know exactly what happened. That moment, brilliant. That is a formative experience. That's a blue dot, right? That's like, boom, impressioned on your mind. And you're reverent to it when you convey your sense of identity as a coach, a convener convener of others who care about humanity and are actionable in their orientation to helping others. So, so when you, if you, if you did not include that moment, imagine is your essence really conveyed? No. It's just, I really uh, have resource to do good media uh, about things that I know the world needs and I'm doing it now. Well, that's a flat story, right? <laughs> yeah, not a lot of contour in that. 
Yeah, not a lot of contour. And we, we want people to be great at something because of something. And we want to know that something as human beings. And so what you do as a human being, when you have, when you have honored yourself by doing the real discovery work, and not just discovery work, folks, you know, I'm not just saying you just search. You search by having a methodology, a guiding system just to orient you, not to create rigidity. Then what you've done is you've given yourself a little bit of flex structure to the process. And that allows you to be able to accomplish the goal of finding those moments. And, you know, you can create storytelling worksheets as the book goes on to help you connect the dots, find themes so that. Over time, when you look at yourself, and it's wonderful to see people do this, by the way. I mean, I love to watch people get to the point where they say, wow, I'm a tireless advocate for social justice or, you know, and they can see the theme in their life, right? And so as a listener of that story or whatever the archetype that emerges is, as listeners, we want to do something for that individual. We want to have... Uh, we want to endorse their next interview, introduce them to someone who can help them with a grant. We yeah. want, right. We want to do that. We invest we go to, in their company, be a shareholder uh, work right. for them or with them. Absolutely. Like, right. And we, and, and you know, and so we have that natural tendency to do that. And we want to see good artists, great artists. We don't want to see musical artists and performing artists that are mediocre. So we want to hear great storytellers, but without methodology for writing the lyrics of it, if you will, to stay within that metaphor, we, we end up not having engaged conversations, which means relationally, I can't endorse you and help you. So it lacks, a, we lack the capacity to be advocates for others as a society, community, organization, family, because we don't honor the person's ability to autonomously, right, to self-drive that narrative that they're capable of because we don't give them the tool to help them do that. Right. Oh. And so that's where, that's where to me, the, everything starts to light up. It's like, Whoa, this isn't just about getting the job. It's about forming the relationships. Right. It, it, it really uh, energizing the mission. Okay. And, and shifting community where we can watch people thrive and not just in the sense of shake a rattle at it, sort of like light sort of, Oh my God, I want you to thrive. And I'm not making fun of anybody who sounds like that, but you know, this is using science to forward action, right? That changes being, that, change it, that changes the way relationships start to shift inside organizations. Again, family, friends, in the middle, recreationally. And I feel like this life is a good life now, right? I can have good living, yeah. but, I, but I can't have it without understanding my own narrative. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I'm reminded of something and I've looked for this just on a, Google, a few Google searches. And I've never found, found it. Maybe I'll hire a researcher to track it down. But it was this idea I learned as an English major, right? English majors study a lot of Freud, <laughs> surprisingly. But it was this uh, idea that Freud had uh, advanced that if, if someone couldn't tell his or her own story, that was part of being unwell. Mm. Right. That it was people who had fragmented or disjointed or absent stories were those who were ill. And I was like, that's really an interesting thing. Mm. And in my own experience, you know, I came across um, something that the, the author Barry Lopez said, I don't know if you've read this quote about sometimes a person needs a story more than food to stay alive. And even when I hear that now, like 
something in me moves. When I first read that, I literally, I cried because it resonated so deeply that, and I know there's so many people on this planet that are living wondering if there's meaning inherent in the universe or if it's even possible, you know, for them to find. And it's so amazing that despite all of the progress we've made, we're, we're every one of us is faced with this identity of meaning. And what's remarkable to me, as I've discovered, is that we can bring meaning to life through the stories we tell, the identities we create, but we often don't do that. It's like having a glass of water that's on the table and we're, we're dying of thirst, but we don't reach out you know, you need a, you, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a wonderful quote that you cited as well. Uh, yeah, it's very moving. And that's because we yearn for a sense of, of purpose and understanding of self. Why am I here anyway? So Howard Gardner talks about the types of intelligences and the type of, uh, right, the nine or now 11. And, uh, you know, so existential intelligence, right? Uh, rhythmic intelligence, musical intelligence. We have deposits of all of them. But the existential is uh, something that has been a bit neglected, right? You know, we, we don't uh, create organizations to have space for contemplation of it. And then for prag making it practical. See, a part of the reason why I wrote the book is the phenomenologists and social scientists and psychologists that I see in the academic world, who I love uh, and spend time with because uh, they are doing good research, whether it's in Oxford or in Ottawa or wherever. Uh, I like to move to practice. I like to jump the bike. Yeah. Okay. You see, right. I like to race the car. Okay. <laughs> so when, when, because that's, that's where you, you see whether the construct is convertible as, as researched and in fact is very informing of research and is called grounded research. So my practice has always informed me so the book might have 12 pages of citations that nobody will even read. Well, that's good. I don't care about that. I want you to be able to tell your story. So again, uh, the, this, this conversation actually uh, reminds me of, of why I wrote the book and why there's, uh, I have to continue to proclaim the need for institutions and organizations to uh, implement ways to do this sort of work, whether the person's a wealth manager or uh, a salesperson. Why are you here? If I ask a person that at an organization and they can't answer it, it's probably uh, that their engagement is very low. Yeah. Well, right. Um, and it could be high if they just had opportunity to explore it. Right. And it doesn't matter. I, I remember one time I was working for this organization and they said, and I mentioned it like very lightly in the book, uh, a senior person in this organization said, hey, you have spent, Dennis, you're spending far too much time trying to help these people. You have to understand they're only X kind of people. They don't need any more education or help trying to figure out anything. Just leave them alone. They're not wow. learners. And that's when I cried. Wow. Okay. Because brilliant to me, like, you know, this person had written them off and this was a top person in the organization responsible for a lot of uh, what we were doing. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this is terrible. But then, of course, I look at it as a formative experience and I say, oh, this is teaching me something, right? That I need to be more clever about how I get good content into people's uh, hands so they can build learning programs and experiences and have the latitude to do so. So, that, uh, so I had to write the book to be very uh, digestible.
um, very much like uh, something that people would read two or three pages and they would want to read more of it and they wouldn't look at it as anything related to an academic anything. Yeah. And, and that's really important, right? To democratize good content or else we're really sequestering it only for the, uh, the wealthy folks uh, or well-to-do folks or well-earned folks who can pay for private uh, executive coaching around storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, part of, part of what you said just a moment ago about, you know, telling our story and it moving people to want to support us or engage with us in some way. I don't think I'd ever seen this until now, but we're, we're doing others a service when we communicate who we are or what our life is about or what we're up to, right? Not just helping ourselves, but we're actually helping them to advance. And if we see our work is bigger than ourselves, if it's about whatever climate change or about animal welfare or about, you know, alleviating poverty and increasing shared, shared prosperity, like especially, and, and there's where you're talking about that virtuous, you know, the collaborative and, and, and the virtuous, then we're actually doing others a service in that way. But I'm reminded again of how confronting that can be because one of my mentors is Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, right? Formerly he's retired now, but one considered the world's top CEO coach. And he, when he would mentor me and other coaches, and he would say, pick the thing that you're going to be the world's leading expert in, and then just announce it over and over and over. And, you know, that's worked for him. And I yeah. remember when we were at a program where he encouraged us to do that. And I went back to my hotel room and I got my uh, dry erase marker out and I wrote on the bathroom mirror, I am the world's leading expert in blank. <laughs> and I stared at it for like the three days, you know, that were left in the conference and I never filled it in because it felt like it was, it would have been a lie or maybe it was too much work or what if I find something later that I'm actually more passionate about. Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe, I mean, what, what do you say to people about really making a declaration, like a bold declaration about who they are in the world? Yeah. I say, give me evidence of it. Hmm. So if you don't have evidence of, of it yourself, you, you proclaiming it is, in fact, just what you felt empty. Yeah. So which is why when folks go through building what we call in the book, a peak story, it has this aspiration, but you're showing three dots baked into the, the narrative. Right. And right. In other words, uh, whatever they might be. Right. Uh, so in other words, each blue dot. So we hear the phrase. Uh, I connected the dots finally. Yeah. Right? Right. I always say, well, I'll be the judge of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe your listeners will, but, but that's what we want people to do. But what dots? So um, for you in that moment, you didn't have any, any evidence, which is cognitive development that you were going to be whoever you were going to be in the, the blank, as you put it. Yeah. But if you had evidence through overcoming an obstacle yourself and it was formative, you would know what mental muscles you used, exploration, creativity, what motivations you had, what people were around, the power of place, where was it? And then you would be able to say, oh, and here's how I collaborate with people en route to, oh, wait, this is what I want to do. Now, we can still get there to meaningful work, but I want to accelerate it and I want you to be better at it, whoever you are out there, right? And so again, that doesn't work when you don't have cognitive development as part of it, which is, which I had to think about because um, to get to self-authorship, 
you have to have cognitive development, according to Baxter Magola, uh, and I agree with her, and you have to have, which informs you your intrapersonal development, who, to answer the question, who am I anyway, right? Yeah. So if I don't know, if I don't have any evidence of who I am, I certainly can't answer this question. Uh, so cognitive development leads to intrapersonal development that allows me to do uh, relationship choosing and sustain relationships. That's interpersonal development. If you have high amounts of each evidence and knowledge of self and then knowledge of the kind of relationships you want, then you're, they're like three diagrams and, you know, the Venn diagram formation and in the middle self-authorship appears, but you need the increasingly uh, higher amounts of each one to feel the, that liberation that I can self-author, I can interpret. And you also need a bit of a structure, which she didn't do in her model because she was theoretical was ever put it into action. So I'm using her, her stuff as a, in giving her applause, duly so. But at the same time, what I want to address is your ability to tell your story. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of what I appreciate about your book. As you said, it's structured. It's not rigid, but it's structured. So it gives us some very specific questions. It gives us a process to follow. So part of what I want to ask for the benefit of the listener now is about if someone buys the book, right? As you talk about people can hire you, they can work with you in some cases, one-on-one, or they can bring you into an organization, but, but uh, obviously, you know, the book will outlive all of us yeah. <laughs> and, and it, it can be scaled in a way that uh, a one-on-one engagement isn't. So where I'm going with all that is if someone reads the book and they want to do everything you're saying, what should they expect? What will it look like in terms of time, in terms of effort, in terms of diff- you know, difficulty, this kind of thing? What's that like? Yeah. So, you know, I would say that it, you know, so the quick answer is right. It varies, but let me tell you what I've learned from feedback. I had a psychologist uh, from the Netherlands redo her website in four days and she changed all of her stories. She said all of her stories were not signaling to her audience who she really was. And after reading the book, it felt that she was being disingenuous. Right. So she did it in four days. Now she's a, she has more control over her schedule. She was super motivated. I've had some people take three or four months to do it. Um, others, a couple of weeks. Most people, fortunately, <laughs> um, have really been struck by how easy it is to use the system, but then they get where they slow down is when they have to think about what moment and they follow the exercises. So that varies for people. Right. Uh, And it can be really fun too, by the way. (laughs) So I would say that it, it, it's uh, it varies, but I've seen anything from, you know, four days, three, four days, you know, someone who is really has free time and is motivated to, you know, three or four months. Uh, Some people who had the pre-release copies, uh, you know, took a little longer. I think depends on how much of a lived life you've had. Uh, if you're, uh, you know, there are a lot of variables in people's lives. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm often so energized, I guess, by the youth of the world, uh, and what they're capable of seeing and, uh, you know, but the, the, the book isn't biased to one population. And that took a little arguing a bit with some, uh, some publisher types, because uh, I said, you know what, you know, they typically ask brilliant, you know, like, uh, what would be your uh, avatar, 
And right. I said, how, how, you know, come on, like, am I supposed to say uh, a private wealth manager who uh, sells for a living? I don't want to do that because to me, the methodology and the language to teach through the book and help through the book and guide through the book had to be relatable uh, cross-generationally and cross-culturally. So if you can, and I think we've done that. So, so the answer is uh, four days to four months. <laughs> right. And, and you touched on this a little bit as well, but who is the book really best for? Is there a certain, you know, is there a certain stage in life? Is there a certain, you know, is it an entrepreneur? Is it a leader? Is it somebody just starting out, you know, after college or something? Like who, who stands to benefit the most from this, do you think? So it's always the motivated person. Yeah. Right. So that's, it's, it's, and how do you get motivated to rethink your narrative? Pain. Tip. <laughs> yeah. Pain. <laughs> so I might not have enough money for dot, 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 dot. I better dive in and fix the way I interview. Um, you know, I have this, this is the first time I've ever been promoted after trying for so long, uh, this has to work. Yeah. Um, or I'm moving across the country and I'm going to take public transportation and sell all my cars and, you know, and uh, use it all to buy a house. Um, when I meet my team, I need to stand out. I need to be who I'm really meant to be and to be and to become right. And uh, so those are, you know, Warren Bennis and I, I, I reference this quote from Warren, uh, who's no longer with us, but he once said, uh, becoming a leader is synonymous with becoming yourself. It's precisely that simple, comma, yet also that difficult, right? Yes. So if a person wants to become themselves, to really answer your question, right? And they appreciate that it might be a little bit of work. If you put the work in, as my friend Chris Draft would say, who's a lung cancer advocate, who is one of our coaches, he, it will work out but he was a former NFL person played in the NFL for 12 years and went to Stanford. So West coaster for sure. And he always says for it, your story to work out, you have to put the work in. It's no different than being in the NFL. You know, you want to be in it for two years. You want to be six or do you want to be 10 or 12? You have to put the work in for it to work out. So there is effort. There's, there's there is effort and you know, don't tap out on yourself. <laughs> yeah. So I realize that you have, you've conveyed the answer to this, maybe at least uh, in parts in response to some of the other questions I've asked, but what are the benefits that someone could expect to, to enjoy once they've put that effort in? How is life different? Wow. Wow. It's, you know, I mean, it's, you're at ease, you know, you know, to witness whether it's in a retreat format or somebody who is in a more corporate setting, or even in my network of, of colleagues who, who do coaching, working collaboratively and to see witness people who are part of a, you know, a convened, you know, some gathering and to witness people breathe differently, right? I mean, one of the, the, the benefits that you can see immediately is not just the ease in their uh, storytelling. There's not that unclear start and rough unfolding. It's also that their breath, right? Everything is breath, right? And 
there's no rushing in the cadence. Their aspiration is uh, really quite lovely. And you can feel that resonance, you know, a bit even on a Zoom when someone is uh, in tune with their narrative. It's not this schizophrenic thing where you don't know who I am, but I'm projecting this thing. It almost seems like a marketing message. There is, uh, you fall into your breath in yoga, right? Yeah. And you do, you do the same with your story. Oh, that, that's beautiful. And it reminds me, I don't even remember who told me this, but when they said it was like a light went on, when they, they were talking about charisma and whether charisma is something that some people have and others don't, or whether we can cultivate it and what it even is. And the suggestion was made that what charisma really is, is simply authenticity. It's simply being comfortable in our own skin. Maybe to say another way that we know our story, that we own our story, that we live our story. And that just like you're saying, when people are drawn to us, people want to help us. Well, that's charisma, right? That's, so. that, yeah, that, the, the essence of charism, I mean, it's a wonderful word, but the essence is, is that uh, you, you have me focused on you, right? And that, you know, and, and, you know, charism, right? Just the, the you know, mm, right? It, it sounds like magic, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because you, you put the work in. Uh, and your story works out for you as an individual. And I witnessed that if you played the wrong instrument and you were supposed to be playing the clarinet, but you're playing the sax or trombone, you know, it would seem like a little weird. You'd breathe funny or in a funny fashion and it, you probably wouldn't sound so good. And so is the story that you may be telling uh, not actually be tuned to you. And yeah. so that's, what's really important. And uh, you know, the other benefit is, is that you get the job that you want, you get the relationships that you want, you know, and you live each moment uh, during the day, each, each block of, of minutes in a way that is guided quietly because you're, you're, you have this sort of etched narrative on, on your mind and it changes the way your brain works. I mean, from a neuroscientific standpoint, you've ha- added relevance to different key moments in your life. And, and now when someone calls you into story, you're, 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 you're able to activate episodic tellings, variations of the telling, where if you and I are going back and forth, I'm not going to lose my place because I know, where my, I know my second dot to my third dot. And so I can give space to honor you in the exchange. But we've all witnessed people step on people as they're supposedly in dialogue. Well, dialogue means dia to pass through logos with meaning your lips. So how can I how can I have true generative dialogue with someone if I'm not aware of my own narrative? And then when I feel anxiety or concern that I'm going to lose my train of thought and that I have to control the rhetoric, that, wow. that, that is very, even saying it makes me not feel good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and you talk about, I love the way you say this about put the work in, your story works out. And obviously, you know, this is something you've been doing for more than a decade talking about story. And so you've put work into this. And one of the things I want to ask you about, you talk about in one of your TED talks about um, the manifesto. Mm. Uh, Will you talk about the manifesto? And then there's one part in particular I want to ask you about, but what is that? And what function does it serve? Why did you create it? Like all that. Yeah. Well, it was a bit of a a moment where I was, uh, this was, probably eight years ago, almost, I guess I, I was about to do this Ted talk and I had finished the, the way I wanted to frame it up because I wanted to use my own life as a reference 
to this model, which I, I didn't share at the time in book form. And I said, well, I have to just write down that the, the, all the layers of how positive a story can be for a person and for the world and for work and for peace. So I just wrote it and I wrote it in one iteration and I didn't edit it. I just wrote it. I wrote it like this line by line, word by word in order. And I changed the size of the words as I was writing. And they, there's very little change in the size of the words from how it's printed in the book. Wow. So I just, you know, because I think I saw and felt it right. That, you know, that this is a really powerful way to go about life is to think of yourself as, as being a person who is uh, going to story like they mean it, which of course is a bit of like the opening of the manifesto itself. And then we put it, uh, I put it in all kinds of uh, places. And then I, I, I didn't, um, I didn't tear it down, but I, I didn't overly use it. I didn't, you know, I did, I don't want to say bastardize it, but I didn't overmarket it, you know, and, but I wanted people to be aware that like, this is your story. So story, like you mean it, right? Like this is, you know, and if you're not in character, you know, jump in, you know, and uh, the rest goes on, of course. But uh, yeah, that's that's amazing. The the one part of it in particular that I was curious to to ask more about was this about inspire by doing. And it's the end. It's at the very end. Right. Yeah, it's the end. Will you talk about that one in particular? Why is why is that in there? Why did you end with it? What does it mean to you? Yeah, it's a great question. Brilliant. So it's the punctuation mark. So, you know, spirit, inspire the word, right? How do you, which is a little bit connected to charism is by doing. And when you see somebody doing what their rhetoric uh, aligns with, boom, walk, talk, match, right? And doing is behavioral. And we see behaviors as human beings and we start to observe behaviors, whether we're kids to parents or parents to grandparents, workers, leaders, mid-managers, you know, community members, right? Advocates, teachers, nurses, healthcare professionals, delivery folks, we see behaviors. And when those behaviors are seen, they're learned and there's no formal schooling. This is beyond, this is like a, a bit like a unbound college experience, right? You see it and then you start to, because that's the first form of learning is by observation, of course, right? And, uh, and we hear it too, by the way. We, we, we hear, we hear the, the person doing it because we hear everything that comes from it. So we hear their voice in proclaiming that declaration, but with evidence, and then they inspire others by doing, and that embodied performance is akin to that musical performance, right? You're, you're, you're doing that. I see that. I feel that I'm contributing this behavior to the world, this play, this action, this moment. Of, of, of doing. So everything aligns to it. So then there's not this, there's not this proliferation of my identity. I'm not bifurcated. I'm not this way here and this way there, but I have really work-life integration. And that's a means of psychological wholeness, right? And emotional settledness, which by the way, was the subtitle of my dissertation. So like integrative storytelling is important, but it's inspired by doing mm -hmm. because storytelling alone is just a, a wonderful plan. And it's an important one, but the activation of the story is the difference maker. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what you're talking about, it being integrated, having integrity. Yeah, right? so yeah. 
I'm yeah. reminded of something uh, Warner Earhart says about without integrity, nothing works. <laughs> so no surprise oh. when our lives, you know, lack that narrative integrity that our lives don't work. Yeah. You know? And it feels terrible. I mean, we've all been there, right? We've all had these, these moments where we're telling a story and uh, we're like, boy, that's not really, uh, I've got to tell this story and be this person, but that's not really who I am. But we don't know how to tap into those moments that define who we are. And we don't set aside those, those time blocks to actually uh, create, right? That story path. And yeah, and yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and what you, you know, your metaphor, you keep referring to about music, I think is very apt. And in, I mean, there's so much in that, right? About performance and, you know, that we, we can do it solo or we can do it collaboratively and all this. And you reference a few times, Joseph Campbell, you know, the great mythologist and storyteller. But uh, as, as you talk now, I'm reminded of his, I love that saying about life as a guy trying to play a violin solo in public while learning the music and his instrument at the same time. <laughs> right. So and I, I think I maybe would have been even more apt if he had said naked, <laughs> but it's a guy standing naked in public trying to learn, but that's how this can feel that first of all, what, uh, uh, when I say this, how this can feel of trying to get our hands around our narrative, identify those blue dots, you know, structure mm -hmm. them, not in a rigid way, share them with others, right? That life is a dynamic process and we do continue to have experiences and you know, all this, but so, well, let me, let me just shift and ask you this before we move on to another part of the interview here. What haven't we talked about? Is there anything that before we move to uh, the enlightening lightning round that you want to talk about or you think would be a benefit to the listener? Well, I, I would just ask listeners to consider when do you have to tell your story? Like, just think about it for a moment. You know, take a moment and just think, you know, this is the, what Brilliant and I are discussing is, is really grounded, you know, and, and I know that I want you to, and I would imagine that Brilliant would love for you to identify moments in your life or areas of your life where you have to tell your story and think about, think about how you would not change it, but just think about where they are, when they are, Yeah. right? You know, make a little note of it. Make a little note of, do you bring energy into the room or do you take it out? Mm. Right. You know, and it's something that I, you know, I touch on in the book that we don't live in a world where we meet other human beings and it's not like, you know, net zero energy situation, like we're measuring, uh, you know, a carbon footprint or something like that. When I leave a person, they've either given me energy or they've taken away. There's never any net, it's netted out at zero. I'm never completely neutral in other words, because I heard someone's story, I've met someone. Yeah. So does your story, if your story is in neutral or it's a little bit tiring for you to say, imagine what it is for others, right? And why not do something about it? Because you're worth it, right? I wrote this book, not for me. I, I wrote it for other people. And I, I, I would love for uh, folks to take inventory of where they have to introduce themselves, tell their story or be aware of their story. Yeah, um, I love that. You know, hearing, hearing you say that, I'm reminded of the, you know, the activist and the author, Alice Walker, where she says the greatest, something very close to the, the single biggest way that we give up our power is by believing we don't have any. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there's the, the corollary to this here is about how we often diminish our own value by thinking we don't have it, that our story is mm -hmm. not worth telling. But when we think about the great men and women of history, if we didn't know the story of Rosa Parks, right, if we didn't know nonviolent 
uh, um, resistance, you know, from Gandhi. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like these things, just the story in and of themselves. And yes, it was based on a fact or something that happened, but that story has power mm-hmm. and, and we all have that. And so what you just said, uh, just want to highlight what you just said, because it was wonderful. Uh, this story happened because of an event. Yeah. Aha, there we go. So whether it were as it could be Rosa Parks, it could be whomever, Susan B. Anthony, there are events and these events, a self-event connection is important to us. We, we see something in it as a human being, as an observer in the world, as a learner, as a liver. And we say, okay, well, well, now again, to be conscious of that, you have to go back and be prompted. That's why we poke at you in the book and we have you do these exercises at the end of the book. Uh, the chapters in the book, because we want you to be able to get to those moments so you can be your own psychologist or phenomenologist and uh, build a story because there is some psychology in the effort to be sure. But the idea is to activate a narrative that informs you and informs others as to who you really are. So you can answer that question. Tell me about yourself and you, every person, right? We all have events and don't think, please, as a listener, uh, as part of this community or a new member of this uh, listenership, maybe even, uh, please don't think that your story isn't sensational enough because when I uh, am in workshops and I recraft someone's story live, they say, I can't believe that's my story. And I can assure you, if you put the time in, it will work out and you will actually have people say that about you. You know, you'll hear people say, whoa, that story is amazing. And, uh, and the process is designed for you to activate this story at the end of the book for sure. I love that. I love that idea of activating a story. Mm. is really cool. And it is these, these stories, these experiences is like the water we swim in. They can seem invisible to us, but there is potentially so much power both to in, in, enhance our enjoyment of living, living this story. And, and I'm, I'm yeah. just reminded now too, by yeah. the way, um, I know uh, about Alan Watts, you know, the spiritual teacher uh, I read a few yeah, years yeah. ago, I read his uh, autobiography and he talked about how, when he was at like prep school or whatever in England, that one of his hobbies with his uh, friends, his group of friends was to identify the elements of their persona and to like tear it down and construct a new one. And, and how he referred to himself as a spiritual entertainer. And I just so struck by, you know, his facial hair and his robe and all this, that he knew at some level, it was just a story he was living. Uh, he's made such an impact for so many people. And so again, many. we can all do that. It doesn't mean we have to follow that path, of course, but we can all be conscious and we can create and we can share and live into that. Yeah. Well, he, you know, great teachers can be entertainers and you can entertain people with your story and you can entertain yourself with your story. And Alan, I love when Alan, uh, one of his videos and, and one of his lectures was uh, uh, starts off with. So what do you desire? What kind of yes. life? Right. You know, he's got that uh, your really unique voice. And and Al, but that's a great question. But I often say, well, you know, how do you know that you desire? How do you know what evidence do you have that you desire this? Mm. Because the ultimate processing unit is your brain. Yeah. Right. And so how you are able to tap into it and focus. And, and I think that's the challenge. And this is to answer a question. One of the other reasons that you, you, you know, you asked this question, but one of the other reasons why it's difficult to tell a story is because of focus. So no, no learning methodology, no apparatus, no tool, no reflection, uh, little focus. So when it's on you, and I think this is why p- people actually read through the whole book is that, is that when it's on yourself, 
we can focus, <laughs> yeah. right? Because we can focus. So I think that that's a little bit of the trick in here too. So if you're wondering about those moments that you tell your story and you're wondering, can you get through the book? Uh, just let me uh, remind you that this book is uh, all about you. So it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Well, if you're up for it, let's go ahead and transition to the enlightening lightning round. I'm in your hands. I, you know, I trust you implicitly. So whatever you say, I do. Awesome. Thank you. And then uh, following that. So again, this is a series of brief questions on a variety of topics. Uh, my aim for the most part is to ask the question and just kind of stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. Um, and then after that, um, I have just a few questions about writing, your creative process, um, advice that you might give to others, uh, that kind of thing. Sounds great. Okay. So question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a story waiting to be understood and lived. All right. Question number two, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Uh, so is this just to clarify uh, an important truth that I believe to be true? Yes. Okay. Well, I, I wouldn't say that people disagree with this, but I will say, I, and I, I will say that sometimes people underestimate the value of their own capacity to create a meaningful story and, but they still proceed. Right. And so um, this is, I would say, I'd like to answer the question another way. This is a bit controversial, maybe, but I would say that most, I'm going to flip this. Brilliant. I would say okay. most people are going to believe what I'm going to say, but many leaders don't want to listen to this that the development of human capital through self-exploration within the workplace is a missing link to engagement and meaning-making essential to evolve the vibe of companies. And that to skip that is, is, is to really ignore uh, human potentiality, uh, but also to disable merit-based outcomes. So whether someone's, so now, why do I say this? Because leaders tend to nod and say, I honor the human side of the enterprise, but I don't want to put the work in. And it's a millennial issue. It's a generational issue. And so I would say that most <laughs> younger folks would agree with what I'm saying. Of course, Chip Conley would say, uh, who I know has been on the show, would say, you know, we're, you know, this is wonderful. There's wisdom at work now and uh, people can be modern elders. I do think it's shifting to that. But there's still a, a bit of this old school, non-McGregor, non-Douglas McGregor orientation where folks still try to control. So I, this is, and, and I'm going to try to demystify it. There are five power bases. You can have position power, expert power, right? You can have referent power, which is likable. And you can have a coercive power and you can have reward power as a leader. And most leaders, when I ask them, hey, what would you like to be known for an expert? Let's take position out of it. Let's look at four because you presumably have the position that uh, you're supposed to have and you have the authority. Would you, what are the two that you wish you were known for? 
everyone always says, every leader almost predominantly says, ah, I want to be known for knowing something. And I want to be known as likable and approachable referent power. And I'll say, okay, when time is of the essence and you have to, which do you go to? They bow their heads almost shamefully, right? Brilliant. And they say, uh, well, sometimes coercive or reward. So what is the, what the issue is, is typically is a lack of programming in the, on the educational side within HR, HRD. And most HR people will say, we do a good job, but their voice says, no, we don't. And we know it. So that's my answer. Okay. Thank you for that. And what are the, what's the basis of those five types of power? So, uh, so this is a, a great book is called, uh, it's written by uh, Daft. I think it's Richard. Um, and it's called The Leadership Experience. Great book. And uh, the, the, the leadership power base is where a leader gets power is, is usually uh, for position, right? So if you actually have the title that is uh, from the president that you should be the senior vice president of finance, then that's power. Uh, it's, uh, you can be expert or knowledgeable or even guru, but that's all about knowledge. You can be also referent, so likable, approachable. People just want to do things for you. You know, that's a, oh yeah, right. I want to be that kind of leader. And then there's coercive, you know, getting punished and reward, you know, getting the goodies and the carrots. And so that's a model that is, uh, when we, is, is pretty much universal that a way of thinking about, of course, it's a little bit limited, but it's how people can relate in a workshop very nicely or in an academic class uh, or even a retreat that, hey, yeah, I can identify, I have this power base, but I want to develop this one. Now, the question is, how do you develop them through your story, mm. right? So that often when I'm teaching a leadership through storytelling, it's developing that that narrative in putting those dots in order so that you can create approachability and likability. So knowing your audience, understanding your intention, and to your point earlier, knowing context and that contextual influence of the storytelling, because context is the environment or the arena for the storytelling. Yeah, that that makes so much sense. And and as you talk too, I'm, I'm reminded now of the fact that when we tell a story, we can invite others into it. But if we never tell the story, there's nothing to invite people into. Bingo. And okay, so now you're getting me lit up again. So uh, this, this creates what's called an LMX, a leader member exchange, right? And so to go to and, to and fro, back and forth is wonderful. It's, it, it allows for a positive quid pro quo, you know, uh, sharing uh, through what the psychologists call the Johari window, where you open the blinds and you share parts of your life back and forth, leader, follower, leader, member, leader, leader. But in the literature, it's called leader member exchanges. And if you want to enhance the to and fro of those and the mutuality of those, uh, that can create wonderful resonance within uh, an organization or uh, in a team. So yeah, well done. And uh, also what happens is it becomes like a plasma that surrounds the experience. So now like my story moments and your moments start to flow into this plasma. It's almost like uh, the goop, uh, this, it's like a, almost like think of jello with all the experiences that are go back and forth. And now the plasma is developed by you and me, Yeah. right? And so we've generated this experience, which is really an encounter because now you have done some revealing to me and me to you 
in a way that's relevant, prevalent, and sense-making given your role. Wow. That is, that's the good stuff. Then we do things for each other. We, we, we work harder, more deeply. We uh, approach with less uh, fear and trepidation because I know brilliant. Well, he'll answer my email or he'll talk to me for five minutes on the fly because we had that, that conversation that we co-generated. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Awesome. Thank you for that. Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or saying or quote or quip, what would the shirt say? Everybody's work matters. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Question number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Well, I'm really concerned about generations at work, you know, because this is the time where we have five generations at work. And it's the first time ever. I have to say, uh, I have gifted Chip Connolly's book to quite a few people. You know, I, I find it really important to elders that they realize that they, they don't have to be quiet and not speak because other people aren't speaking and that they can have that heart of an intern um, and feel self-affirmed by sharing their story and being vulnerable. But likewise, that young people can also, or younger people, or even you know, mid-career people can become more sensitive to what can be gained across the generations as well. I think that's a really rich area of, uh, of research and study. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will say one other book, um, sure. The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. I think people don't realize the social cues that trigger behaviors that need to be replaced by other routines than the ones that aren't serving them. Yeah. And, you know, so I do a little bit of a rip on that, but I like that book as well. Awesome. Me too. <laughs> okay. Uh, question number five. Mm. So you've traveled a lot. You traveled a lot. What is one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make that travel less painful or more enjoyable? Mm. My daughter gave me a little sketchbook uh, years ago. She's 20. I think she was probably uh, maybe 12, actually, when she gave it to me. And I love to sketch in it. So I would say I, I keep that uh, with me all the time. And uh, some good, uh, uh, one other one that's, a, so I'll, I'll, I have to answer it with two. If, is, that, is that legal? Can I do yeah, that? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> I would say some good jazz. Uh, I, love, I love some good jazz uh, uh, at the ready. Good jazz music. Mm, man, that sets me straight. Awesome. What's something that you've been enjoying recently or what are some of your, your go-tos or your favorites? You know, I, I really love Greg Porter. He's a great lyricist. He's more of a modern jazz guy. I think he's, he's fantastic. Uh, in, at the Newport Jazz Festival, we were able to see him live. But I, I love some underground Coltrane, too, to take me away, you know, uh, and to really uh, practice contemplation and wandering, you know, really letting go. And, um, I, you know, there's a guy, Daniel Bennett, who is the associate director of the uh, New York Jazz Academy. He's fantastic. He's a clarinet player, flute and sax, and he's a wonderful teacher too. So, uh, and he's, he's really funny. So he, he does things that are a little unusual. Um, I would say, you know, I, I think that, you know, Chet Baker all the time, right? Like I could listen to Chet and probably do every morning. Almost, I, I bet for 60 to 70% of my mornings start off with, uh, some Chet Baker in the mix. Wow. Now yeah. I'm going to have to check all that out. I took a, a music appreciation class that focused on jazz many, many years ago, but beyond mm -hmm. that, uh, I haven't listened to much, but you've inspired me now to go <laughs> back and explore a little more. Yeah, cool. So thank you. Okay. Um, what's one thing. So this is question number six, 
Mm-hmm. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Oh, I don't really drink. You know, I, uh, I'm no good at it, as it turns out. Uh, the less I did it, uh, the, you know, I, I, I think that that's really important for me. Um, I, I didn't ever um, declare it as the worst thing in the world. But um, I just, I, I don't know. I just, I just started removing it a little bit. And I'm a vegan, so I 100% plant-based. Uh, and and uh, I'm not one of those people who run around trying to convert people. So I want to, you know, just clarify that. But uh, a person I met and friend, uh, Rich Roll, when I was in, in Vegas, uh, he, he was telling a story and I was prepping some people for storytelling at the Learning Village. And I heard his story and I said, if, if Rich can be a vegan, I can do it for a couple of weeks. And that has really uh, helped me tremendously. Wow. How long has it been that you've practiced veganism? Whew. I would say uh, seven, eight years. Wow. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. And I, you know, you know, the Portuguese people in my family thought I was, you know, a little wild because they, some of them had owned uh, one of my great aunt, my Tia, as it were, uh, she owned a sausage company, you know, very innovative uh, entrepreneur field, you know, in the forties, I think she started that business. And uh, so for me not to eat meat was uh, considered a little odd in that part of the, our family tree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not eating meat. Many people, I think, view it as un-American. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, I, I've converted my father to some vegan dishes, which I thought is really good. So I, that's helped me uh, maintain my energy um, for sure. Um, and I still bike, but I would say uh, definitely the veganism. And, um, you know, I don't, I'm not a big drinker. I think that helps too. Right on. Okay. Uh, question number seven, what is one thing you wish every American knew? Uh, philosophy. I, I think that we really were absent philosophers. Um, I mentioned this a little bit in the book that, you know, that the, that the, the method that I share is, uh, was inspired by uh, to become a philosophy for living. So after you're done with your story, it's an apparatus or a way of organizing or thinking about your life because you're a dot collector. You're always going to do stuff, right? Hopefully, right? And uh, you're going to be engaged in the world. So as you're engaged in the world, it's important to understand how these experiences are ordered and weighted and contribute to your sense of self-worth and sense-making. And that's philosophy is how you think. Yeah. So whether it's this method, another method, uh, I think embracing a philosophy is, is key. Awesome. Okay. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Uh, Calling out mistakes quickly. Your own or your, your partners or. (laughs) Yeah. I would say, so, all right, now you've added a, (laughs) you have added a little bit of a spin to that pitch. I would say uh, it's, for me, originally, uh, I was answering the question that if I'm goofing something up, I'll catch it right away. Mm-hmm. Right? I'll, like, and, and, and not letting it go and not worrying about saving face, but saving face by being human. Mm-hmm. Like, like if I see like back in the day when I first started training adults who are a lot older than me, 20 and 30 years older, you know, I, you know, I knew what they were doing was a goof, goof up. Right. And so I might have a little, maybe I'd push them a little bit on it. Right. And, uh, I realized that, 
in other words, if somebody were misspeaking or not being very good at something, I would uh, kind of be a little bit of a wise guy. You know, I'm going back 15, 20 years. And I realized that with some people, uh, based on their baggage, that, that humor, they didn't really understand the intention of it, right? So calling myself out quickly and saying, hey, my Portuguese family is big on humor. So if I, if I, if I'm being too goofy with you, let me know. And typically people would start to laugh and it would be fine, but it would also was telling the truth. Like that was the origin of some of my early techniques to engage people on topics such as public speaking and their, and being evaluated on their public speaking. Um, now I'm a little less humorous, although I think I'm still can be funny and I'm more uh, around the fidelity of the model to help people just witness their own greatness as a public speaker to answer that question. Tell me about yourself. And so I would say, if you make a mistake, call it out quickly. I mean, I know that it, it, or if you think somebody has mistaken your intention, call it out quickly. Mm. I love that. Okay. Question number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Uh, as a creator, uh, you, uh, you, so this is not to cite Ayn Rand or Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged, but you, there are really a couple of camps when it comes to creating. Either now, if you're an Ayn Rand fan and, you, fan and you've read Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged, you know the objectivist, uh, objectivist philosophy uh, or the philosophy of objectivism which is that you're either essentially, I'm summarizing, you're either a creator or you're feeding off of a creator, right? Now, I'm going to answer your question. So I think about that once in a while because I think, hmm, is that really true? And I think what I think about that is that creativity deserves money, whether you're a mural artist or whatever you do. So I would say that if you are creative, I bet that that's tied to compensation <laughs> because your time and talent that turns into a behavior in a relevant space and place deserves money. And accepting that is, is sometimes a challenge for people. You know, the first time uh, I've ever charged a, a, a handsome fee, so to speak, for, you know, years ago for a stipend to speak, it feels a little weird, but that I don't have a lot of money reluctance, so I have no problem now. But I think that for others and for myself sometimes, and for others, probably more than me, because I had a great teacher in my grandmother who's still alive and about to turn 96. Wow. She, taught, she taught me about money and she would sit down and do the books for her business in front of me while I was eating some you know, really amazing food that she also created, by the way. And uh, she went to Rhode Island School of Design and took a couple of buses to get there uh, as a Portuguese woman who had probably two or three kids at the time. And so, you know, creativity is powerful and creativity and money uh, are interwoven. So if you're an artist, it's okay to get paid. And if you're an entrepreneur, make sure that you're creating something uh, because you'll get paid. And if your story is told well, you'll be compensated somehow. Either you'll have less frenetic time uh, and more balance or more money. So I think that creativity and money are, are cousins, they're not cousins, but they're causally connected. And maybe not like Ayn Rand said exactly, but there, there's a deep connection there. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me. And I'm, I'm reminded of something I learned when I went through Tony Robbins' Business Mastery 
And it's so mm-hmm. basic, but it's about value creation. Mm-hmm. And just like you're saying, if your creativity is adding value to people, that's <laughs> what, yeah. what do you call this tautological? Like that's valuable. <laughs> yeah, that's valuable. And you know, your, your, for your story, it should show value and worth. And if you have more money to do the things that you're loving and good at, you'll become better at it. And then you'll evolve them and you'll, you'll be so expert at it, right? That you'll never tap out or pull the pin or quit because yeah. you'll be sought after. So you'll have a reinforcing loop that's called a, a virtual snowball effect because the thing that you're good at, you're getting paid well enough to not worry about other things, which keeps you at the top of the pyramid, the virtuous work, the love work, right? And then the money comes and it flows. Why does it come? Because you've assigned the ultimate meaning to it. So meaning money. So meaning first, money follows. Yeah, I think so. That's, that's awesome. Well, speaking, speaking of money, one of the things that I have done uh, to express my gratitude to you for making time to share with me some of your experiences and your wisdom today is I have gone to Kiva.org, the micro lending site, and I have made a $100 micro loan to a woman entrepreneur named Paela in Samoa who will use this money to, uh, she will buy taro and banana. She's 52 years old. She's a widow. She has two kids, but in this way, she'll provide a living for herself, her family and improve the quality of life in her community. So thank you for giving me a reason to to do that. Mm, Absolutely. Right on. Right on. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Yeah. It's a bonus. My pleasure. Um, Okay. So although I do have just a few last questions for you, um, if people want to learn more from you or if they want to connect Mm. with you, what would you have them do? So uh, the website's, I think, quite nice. <laughs> DrDennisRibello.com is uh, the ecosystem for the book. You can learn a little bit about what folks are saying. You can buy the book there. Uh, you can also read up a little bit on uh, me and uh, jump from, from that to LinkedIn or Instagram or even Facebook. Yeah, and so there, and we were talking about this before we were recording, that people can also find a reader's guide, like a, something they could use as part of a book club or in a group that, um, that they, they would convene. As well, yeah, yeah, thank, cool. yeah. Thanks for the reminder. Uh, there's a free book club guide there, which is you just have to provide your email address, and we just want to know, you know, where are you using it, you know, within an organization, and a very, very easy gated entry. So a couple of uh, fields you fill out, boom, it downloads right away. And what we're seeing, and thanks for reminding me about this. The, this we we did this a bit just right before launch, and uh, folks at the Cleveland Clinic. Are using it, uh, physicians. I think it's their physicians leadership council. Um, they're using it so that physicians orient themselves to telling their story to uh, their other caregivers, their teams, their people that report up to them, as well as uh, patients. And also, we are seeing it in Germany, uh, France. We're seeing it in. Uh, there were quite a few in Texas. We have. I we we probably have sixty to seventy very active book clubs right now. Um, that are using it. And uh, it's, it's absolutely wonderful to, to see. Actually, I think the Cleveland Clinic started a second one. That is awesome. Well, good for you and good for them. Yeah, good for them. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, 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 right on. <laughs> Making medicine human again. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Can you, can you imagine? <laughs> okay, so the last part of the interview here, mm. just a few questions about how you got this book done, what your habits, routines mindsets are as it relates to writing and the creative process. Um, I want to start with this. When did you first know you were a writer? 
Well, the only way they give you a PhD is you have to develop a dissertation. And it's almost like forced writing, <laughs> right? Because you make this declaration um, and you say, I'm on a PhD, you take classes, but eventually you have to create something. So a PhD is a little different than an EDD, which, uh, you know, early on in my life, I knew nothing about the distinctions, but a doctorate that's an educational doctorate usually is three years. You know, it's very prescribed, very important work, but a PhD could take you five years, eight years, 10 or 12 years because you're generating new knowledge. So you're building knowledge. So the first time I knew I could write, I had to really get out of speaking to write because I was used to speaking professionally. And I did my doctorate work while I was working full time. So I would say then the qualifying essays and, and then some. When I realized I was going to write this book, I had known that I had been able to tap into a, a voice that was acceptable to varied people from cult culturally and generationally. And that, it, that I found sort of the fun lane to entertain, engage, and get people to do things that would be good for them. And I did that first by building an online program class that I, that was a, really the digital book, lots of like 42 videos, forms, et cetera. So people could build their peak story in my public speaking classes and my practice, the work I do supporting people in enterprise. And then, then the writing really became so much fun because I had, I had forced myself through the PhD years and then I played in the speaking world and then I played in the video world. And then I saw sort of the, in that triangle, what the book had to be like, like. and uh, COVID struck. And I, I, you know, started writing uh, 30 days later and I had just come back from San Francisco. I was at Seinhauser Heiser to the audio company doing a private event. I, I was very, I was a little nervous because it was the word was out that COVID was hitting California. And, uh, and I started writing and I, and I woke up every morning uh, and I had a, a designated schedule every couple of days. And it was, and I scheduled it for myself and I meditated. I listened to jazz. Uh, I sat in a very still way and I zoned in on each chapter after figuring out the outline. And I just focused on that chapter and getting it all out. Um, and I recorded uh, my notes uh, as I was writing as well. Uh, and uh, the power was in the editing, but getting the first version done was done toward the beginning of fall. And then the final manuscript was done December 18th. Wow. <clears throat> it's a pretty quick timeline to get a book written and published. Uh, I think, you know, COVID opened up a window a little bit, right? Uh, I saved on some travel time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. What did you, what did you experience was the most challenging part of getting the book written and published and how did you deal with it? How'd you overcome it? Well, I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to make sure I was being inclusive in the book. So I think that was the challenge, but I also wanted people to realize this book is, has the capacity to change the spoken word that you utter during the day. Right. So getting the words right after the first 
rip through all 10 chapters and making sure they were exactly the way I wanted it. Um, wasn't being a, a theorist perfectionist as much brilliant as it was really just making sure that I, I would tickle people's brains a little bit and that they would have some fun. Like who wants to read a book and feel like it's uh, rigid and unworkable, right? And so I wanted to make sure that I was using the words in a particular way and also citing researchers in a way that wasn't sounding like a normal citation, but nodding to people who had contributed to my evolving knowledge and the way I developed this model. Yeah. I know many people think of writing a book as a solitary endeavor, and in many ways it is, mm-hmm. but it's also a collaborative endeavor. In some ways, yeah. it's maybe closer to filmmaking than we would think. Mm-hmm. That there is a production team and you know yeah. other people that come into the process. What did it look like? What did, the, what did other people's uh, participation in making this book what it is look like? So my wife knows my work really well. So as uh, you can imagine, you know, when you're in a relationship such as that, you know, and she's an instructional designer. So she was very good at picking up parts of the ordering that would be a really good way to, to sequence how I was introducing language so that, you know, we, we, we talk about blue dots, you and, and me, we talk about blue dots are, but really to the listener, that's a formative experience. That's a strong event in your life, a self-event connection. Well, we load people up with some new language in this book and doing it in a particular order is it had to happen. So she was really helpful. Her name is Shannon. Shannon is uh, just a great thinker, organizer, very amazing organizational co- competency. So she was very helpful. And I think reading it and with my editor and having the courage to say, no, this word is this going to be this, or we're going to remove that. I don't like the way that sounds. That's not really, that's not really the way I don't like the way that portrays me. This book isn't about me. It's about the reader, but I have to give them a little bit of me, but I don't want to give them that vibe. So let's change this sequence of words a little bit so that I, you know, I downplay myself and, and not because I don't, I just didn't want to be the center of attention in this book. Yeah. So that was really important to me. And then reading it to my mother-in-law who just passed away almost a little over 30 days ago. She, she has ovarian cancer, Sandy and Sandra would come down on Tuesdays to work on a quilt with my daughter, which was the final quilt that she made. And she was young. She would ride her bike 10, 12 miles a day, 77, very, you know, much like your dad didn't um, make it to the eighties and nineties. Right. And when you, uh, and I would read the book to her because she was an educator's educator. And I read the book to her very, very well read. I mean, would read five to 10 books a week. And I would sit with her and I would just read her the, the book as if it were an audible, you know, tell me about yourself, right? I'd start with a question and uh, I'd get right into it. And I, I read uh, the first three chapters before it would became more difficult for her to be able to do it. Uh, and, uh, it was wonderful. And so, but she gave me a glow in her, uh, <laughs> nonverbal response and I could, and she asked good questions and it helped me realize the older readers really need sense-making too. Um, and so, uh, I had to honor her ear along the way. Uh, and then it's being true to yourself and your intention as a writer, well, you know, and think about your own lived experiences. Who are you really trying to reach here? Yeah. You know, and when someone tells you just reach this, you'll sell more books. Is that really what you want to do? Or will the books 
sell more over time because it's right. And so like balancing that, you know, I'm aware of the business part of it, but I wanted to honor my own identity too. So that was really critical. So the power as uh, a lot of writers may tell you would be in the editing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Tell me about what was the editing process like for you? Well, I probably went through the book seven or eight times, you know, after I read, uh, did the, uh, the transcript uh, or the manuscript. And I, I would just, I would wake up the next day and I would think about what I had dove into. And I tried to do it in chapter three, three chapters at a time, you know, just like a good reading. Um, and then, then I got to the end during, I would say the sixth, seventh and eighth reads, I went right through the book from beginning to end without stopping. So I was really, I wanted to understand, make sure that there was this holism to it. So the whole process that it flowed, like there was no, there would be nobody calling and say, Hey, I don't get what you said on page 112 doc, what's going on. You know, <laughs> I didn't want that. So, uh, so I just, I made sure that I, I, I really, I read, I did a line by line edit. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what tools and technologies were useful to you? What did you find? Was there anything that was indispensable? Anything you tried and you, you abandoned? What, what, what did that look like? You know, writing is very different than speaking. Okay. And it's a different language altogether. Both are different. So if you're a good writer, you might not be a good speaker. Uh, and they're not mutually exclusive, but they're very distinct. Yeah. So I would say that reading aloud is probably the best thing you can do as a writer. You know, you really, uh, it, it takes a lot of time, you know, it might take you five, five hours, six hours to read your book out loud, but you understand whether or not you voted for those words that you just, you just, uh, gave voice to okay. you, know, the words that you amplified. And so it's, a. I I use some tools collaboratively that were, provided by the publisher so that they could see what I could see. And that when I changed something, we didn't, you know, I didn't change it and miss it. And those are good tools, uh, you know, and, and we could have notes on them and whatnot. Like, Hey, I just changed the section. Please make sure that it gets into the final, <laughs> the final um, baked copy, you know, the signed off copy. Um, but, you know, I think for the most part, the tools are really out there. You just have to, you have to do the work. You have to do the work and, and, hearing your, your, your word choices in the sequence of those words, because those words convey the essence of what you want to convey, whatever it is you're writing about. So you, ha you have to add voice to it. Oh, absolutely. And here, you know, you use the word essence and I know you might not have, it's not necessarily interchangeable with what I might add, which is energy, but I'm mm -hmm. curious uh, what your experience has been like either writing this book or just writing in general about the fact that in any communication, there's the content, like the literal meaning, but then there is also an energy or perhaps an essence or an intention or something. What's your experience like of this kind of parallel coding that's <laughs> present wow. in our communication? Such a great question. I mean, we, we, we see that in email all the time. What's that person's intention? They, they yelled at me. No, they didn't. So, <laughs> right. So as soon as we go to the written word, in, in, not just an, in an email, but also in a book, it can come across wrong, right? Without that intentionality or that essence or that uh, vibe, right? Uh, that, yeah. you know, sort of energy, right? That you're referring to brilliant. So I tend to lean on the, the, this concept that 
I need to make sure they hear my energy. And that if I'm writing an email, in other words, in, in regular life, I'll say, hey, brilliant, you know, uh, it was great meeting with you. I'll be flying through Utah, blah, 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 clicky clock. Uh, not to add any pressure to scheduling, and I mean this with positive intent in brackets, <laughs> love to connect, thinking of this, that might work too. Share your thoughts. But if I wrote, I'm flying through uh, Utah, uh, I might be available, share your thoughts. You're going to be like, wow, like I might be available. Well, I'm busy too, right? Yeah. So, but if I add the, you know, I'm sharing this with positive affect and intent, you know, want to continue our conversation and understanding how the work you're doing is impacting organizations, you know, then I'm, I'm adding that. But sometimes you have to remove those brackets when you're writing a book, right? And I might be speaking about, you know, being live wired to story, as I did when I was talking about Jimmy Allen's story, the black country singer. And, you know, I would add, I think in that section, I added, you know, you have a you have a call to story, too. Right. And so I have to take it out of me telling you stuff and about someone else and then say, you know, hey, you Hello. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so how we do that in a book is the same. It's like being a good jazz musician. You let people come in and out. Like I might give you music, but then I want your music. I want your saxophone to come in off of my bass or my bass provides a beat or you do the bass and I do the sax. And then he does the clarinet and Dallin does, you know, piano, but we all have to kind of shift all around a bit. And so knowing when to do that with the reader I think helps preserve the energy you wish to convey through the writing. Yeah. Awesome. What, um, so final question, it's really two questions because the first part is uh, what else haven't we talked about related to writing creativity that you think might be of service to the reader? And that might be the same answer to the second question, which is what advice or encouragement or it might be different, but what advice or encouragement do you leave those listening with to help them get their own creative books, their own creative projects done or their own books finished and published? Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, find a grain of sand, you know, uh, even though we all want a unified theory of existence or, or we may want it, and this is presumptuous of me, but I think that people want to understand how all life fits into itself. Find a grain of sand that is, stands out to you. Find your, your blue dot related to it. And then think about bring the future to the present and say, ah, this book, this creative project in action will, will solve this problem, solve for this in this way. And it will look like this totally glorious because boom, 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 boom. And just write off of it. Or when speaking, you say green of sand, yeah. sorry to jump in, but when you say green of sand, do you mean irritant like the oyster making yeah. the pearl or? What do you mean no. by grain of sand? So find the one thing that you, you, that you tend to wander to when you're, so, okay, that's a great question. Brilliant. So when I'm going to, there are two psychological competencies that will help. I think one is, so if you, so there are eight total that I, I talk about in the book too, which is leadership. The opposite of leadership is receptivity, creativity. The opposite of creativity is exploration. In other words, you need both. They're related, but you can't do them at the same time. Discrimination, which is analytical thinking power. The opposite is being flexible, right? And then uh, organization, knowing how things work, and then being able to speak uh, communication. So if you turn up your ability to be open, contextually aware, just 
open, right? It's like pushing myself off in a little dinghy boat or sailboat or raft off the, uh, in the pond across the street from my house or the lake. I roll out and I'm open to whatever, wherever I go, but I add exploration and then I, and then I can go to uncharted territories in that lake or that pond. And I say, okay, so openness, that's called contemplative wanderer, psychological archetype. Roy Horan tuned me into that, a friend of mine in Hong Kong. So when you do that, you can find limits to what you want to do because you're open and you're exploring. And you can also find, right, which is a boundary. You can also find opportunities. So it's really important. And uh, sometimes you can do this through a a quasi-meditative practice. You can do this through walking, a chi walk. You can do this for take a hike, a jog, get on a bike lyricless music and you contemplate and you wander what is the one thing that should anchor my writing what is the one project i should pour into and pour into that i love that that reminds me of that swami vivekananda quote take up one idea make that one idea your life think of it dream of it live on that idea let the brain the body muscles nerves every part of your body be full of that idea and just leave every other idea alone. <laughs> like, uh, and I'll add this, inspired by doing. Yes, so perfect. <laughs> so perfect. Well, Dr. D, this has been so awesome. Um, I'm really grateful to you for making time. Um, I know you'll be through Utah because it's the center of the universe and everyone comes through Utah for something, <laughs> whether it's Sundance Film Festival or Silicon Slopes or the Outdoor Retailers Expo or to go to Southern Utah, whatever. But uh, next time you're here, I hope you'll let me know and uh, I'll do what I can to make sure that we connect if our, your schedule allows and I'm in town. So, yeah, uh, and right wherever, wherever our paths cross again, I'm really looking forward to staying connected and, and developing our friendship. I, I also am, uh, you know, I'm thrilled with the work you're doing. You know, it's, uh, there are so many different on the fringe opportunities. When I say that, I, I mean, to, where education meets the real world where humanistic existential thinking and that is evidence-based or supported through really nice pedagogy, ways of teaching, ways of learning, andragogy, and, you know, a mind's eye on the encounter of the learner, right? So that's a conjure esthete, being able to be creative and use your analytical power to be creative. And when I look at what you're offering, uh, I see your virtuous story in motion, you know, that you, you are creating something and have created something and gathering and distilling human beings who know the power of this type of learning, teaching, coaching, and how transformative it can be. And yeah. so I just want to thank you for the work you're doing uh, as an educator and teacher as well. Well, thank you. Okay. Well, with that, we'll wrap. And thank you to everyone listening. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access 
to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.